is up Settlement Nation. This is part two of our talk with Keith Bruno. Uh, in this episode, we're going to speak with Keith about some of his amazing results, his experience working with Nick Rowley, and more tips and advice for up-and-coming attorneys. I hope you enjoy the rest of this discussion. I think in every profession, results matter. And in the legal profession, specifically personal injury, I think the biggest difference in the result is really the attorney that is chosen by the by the client. I mean, you could take the same client in the same set of circumstances and go two streets down to another law firm and that person would get more or less or far more or far less depending on the talent and the skills of the of the trial attorney. So clearly from your results and, and what we've already talked about today, uh, you have quite a bit of talent. And let's talk about one of those cases. Uh, you received the Top Gun Award for a $11.5 million verdict. And the settlement offer on that case was $10,000. So how did that happen, Keith? So just in general, uh, and I'll answer your question, Chris, but I think what you said is so important. And it's why personal injury practice is a collaborative practice because there are so many of these cases out there that good attorneys can turn into justice for all these different families. It's not a zero-sum game. In criminal, if some rich guy gets arrested, he's going to hire one lawyer to the, to the basically to the, uh, to the detriment of all of the other lawyers that are practicing criminal law. You know, you're not going to get that fee. Someone else is going to get that fee. And there's only so many rich guys getting arrested, right? So you're almost in competition if you're in criminal law. In in civil, a good lawyer, you know, you you take a car accident that occurs and hurts somebody and, you know, they have maybe a surgery or some injections on their back. And you take a good lawyer and a good lawyer can turn that into complete justice, a, a significant amount for that client. And a bad lawyer will do something less. Those kinds of cases are all over the place, right? Just because I get one, I get a rear-ender accident, doesn't mean you won't. And it doesn't mean I can't help you with yours. I'd love to help you with yours. If you know, By helping someone else, I invariably learn something that can help my case. So there is no zero-sum game in this, and the lawyers do make a difference. With, with that case, um, where we got the verdict in Torrance, um, that was, I mean, that was a magical case because the, the way I'm, I'm very convinced that the way in which you get verdicts is by the conduct of the defense, not necessarily by the virtue of the plaintiff. And in that case, the defense lied and we were able to prove that they lied about pretty much everything, which, which was the, the, the material facts were uh, whether or not the guy driving the truck clipped my guy who was on a bike um, and he was coming at my guy. Or if you believe the guy in the truck, he says that my guy came screaming around the corner, lost control of the bike, hit the side of his truck while he was stationary and then died. Um, now, we, we were able to prove that that didn't happen. Um, and we were able to prove it because the uh, the defense biomechanic and accident reconstructionist, a guy by the name of Burkhart, uh, had, had simply falsified a 
uh, an experiment and and falsified the all of the testing that he did with with an exemplar bike and the car, and we were we were able to prove it. And when I say falsified, you know, he, this basically was the mountain bike, and if you can imagine a mountain bike um, that has an adjustable fork where you can lock out the front wheels or you can you can unlock the front fork and then you have much more give much, as you press down on the, the handlebars. Uh, so to do their experiment and to quote unquote prove that the handlebar would never have hit the truck, they, they jacked the fork up and locked it out. So no matter how much pressure one put on it, uh, it would always remain at the highest stagnant point. Well, the only problem was is that as, as we were getting ready for trial, and this is where going through everything, this is where you know all the lawyers preach there's no substitute for doing the work. Here's a real example. We're, I'm sitting in John Landerville, who's my accident reconstructionist from Momentum Engineering. I'm sitting in his office, and he's got this giant, like, 100 inch television screen crystal clear everything was cool and we this is years into the case um and we're just going through all of the photographs in the case every single photo just i want to look at them i want to see them i want to see them in a room with other people i want to i want to i want to see what you see i want to force you to look at them so that you might see something that, that pops out and as we're going through this and we're going through it i noticed the fork issue because there was only a handful of photographs from the actual scene with the actual bike. And then there's a million photographs of Burkhart's experiments with the exemplar bike, mm. right? So as we're just going through it, it's almost like that, you know, moment in the usual suspects where once you see it, you can't unsee it. And I saw it and I'm like, ah, I, I know exactly what they did. I know exactly what they did with their experiments. I know exactly what they did with their photographs. And then knowing that, I decided to wait on it until closing argument because I figured they would try to lie and weasel their way out of it or basically claim it didn't matter because of the travel or the, the distance of the exemplar. Or, you know, they would, they would say some kind of bullshit that some person might actually believe. Uh, so I waited until rebuttal clothes. And then I brought the bike out in front of the jury and I brought the photographs blown up of their experiment that, that quote unquote proved that the accident couldn't have happened the way we theorized. And I just showed the jury. I said, look, this is what they did. This, this is what we've been saying. And this is the proof of it. And that was really all I needed to do. I mean, all 14 of these people were like leaning forward in their seats and their jaw was on the ground. And they return that verdict. And as a, a kind of an end note to that case, I, I think it's important to know that I had such a difficult time during four year. I got no cause challenges granted, even though there was like six or seven that, that were no brainers. This judge just, just was unwilling to grant cause challenges. I used every single one of my preamps and the defense used zero. So if you're, if you if you haven't done a trial and you're thinking of that, I am striking seven potential jurors out of basically desperation, knowing that I'm just so screwed in this case. And with each juror I strike, they go, oh, we're fine with the jury. All seven times. And then I thought, of course, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna strike seven, and then they're just gonna go on a run and eliminate 
all of the, you know, the jurors that they don't like. But they liked every juror because every juror, at least in Torrance at the time, hated bicyclists. They, they, they liked truck drivers. And my client had some other issues. He was on, um, he was on parole. He was unemployed. Uh, he was an African-American. You know, he, he didn't have, you know, it wasn't like some lily white girl on a, uh, on a scooter, you know, was plowed into by a hell's angel. You know, it, it had, it had none of these factors that a jury or a potential juror would, would be able to get positive prejudices behind the case had, had negative prejudices, unfortunately, but to the jury's credit, they listened and they heard the evidence. And in doing so, they rendered a good verdict. Well, I think going back uh, to something you said a couple minutes ago, that the really key turning point in the case was that, that evidence that you kind of held back till the end. I don't think a lot of attorneys would have done that. I think they would have been so eager to show their hand. Uh, maybe not all attorneys, but a lot of them would have been eager to get that out on the table. So I think by you holding it back, that obviously made a huge difference in that case. Um, and let's, let's transition to another case. I think this is the biggest verdict that you've gotten. You can correct me, but you did a, uh, case, uh, with Nick Rowley, who has a open invitation to join settlement nation. He, he, uh, y- you and Nick, you brought a case to verdict for $40 million that Courtney mentioned earlier. It was a wrongful death case against TG, TGI Fridays. Could you speak a little bit about that case and that experience working with Nick? Yeah, that was an amazing experience because it was one of my first. So it's like when you win the Super Bowl uh, as a rookie, you know, you're like, oh, this is how it is. You know, great. Um, I'll, I'll win the Super Bowl next year. And, you know, that it is it is my biggest verdict. I've had 15 million, um, 12, 10 uh, and 40 so it hasn't, you know, been the Super Bowl exactly every year, but that was, you know, that was an extraordinary verdict and a remarkable one um, on a case that the family themselves had to file in pro per on the last day uh, that the statute of limitations was running. They, they, they couldn't get a lawyer. Nobody wanted to take the case. Nobody thought it was a case. And, and that's probably, you know, once Nick got it, it's probably a testament to, you know, either his craziness or his wisdom. I don't know. You can pick, you, you can pick one, probably a little bit of both categories. Uh, but Nick had initially just brought me on to do the DNA analysis and, and to deal with, uh, with a lot of the criminal crossover parts, because the, one of the critical issues was if the, there were two defendants and two potential stabbers, uh, if it was the guy who was over the age of 21 that was the stabber, uh, then we lose automatically. There's no case because it was basically a dram shop case. If it was the guy who was under 21, then we're, we're in the argument. You know, then we've got a, a shot. And given my criminal experience, I had a lot of DNA experience and just a lot of experience dealing with the police, the Department of Justice, all this other stuff. So. I was kind of brought on as, as a consultant and I was just going to give some ideas about, you know, what I, what I thought I got involved in the case and I rolled my sleeves up and then, you know, quickly became Nick and I worked very well together. So he was like, all right, you're on the case. Um, and I was like, Oh, okay. 
that, that sounds good. And so we split up the representation. I represented uh, the mom and he represented the dad. No, pardon me. I think I represented the dad and he represented the mom. And that gave us kind of two bites at the apple of, of voir dire and two bites at the apple for open and, and questioning witnesses and, and all the like. Um, and it was really a, it was, it was more of an experience than a, a trial. Um, because it had everything. I mean, the judge levied sanctions against us. Um, we we were battling multiple law firms that had. I mean, they had a uh, a guy sitting in the courtroom who would just type all day, and he would type out motions that would then that they would then hand to us as we're leaving at you know four forty five p.m. to be responded to by the next morning. And it's just like Jesus Christ, you know, like. We need that. We don't need this. Um, but one of the things that it taught me was, you know, despite all the money and the power that the defense has, good defense firms do, and all of the resources that they can throw at you to busy you, to confuse you, to to overwhelm you, to wear you down in this war of attrition. Once you get the jury, all their power goes away. Then it's just you and them. And it's how persuasive you are. And we were we were so persuasive that a year later, a year after the verdict, on the anniversary of the verdict, I get a, a, a text, a picture sent to me by my client. And they had gone out as they did uh, all the time for to the to their son's grave. And the picture was of a card that one of the jurors had left at his grave and she had, had written him a beautiful card and, and she was proud uh, to have been a juror and to have brought some measure of justice to Riverside after the criminal system completely dropped the ball and failed to convict these guys of murder and instead gave them deals. Um, and so, you know, we talked earlier about, about kind of the, the ancillary things that make this all worth it, that, that are really, you know, aside from the money or the recognition or the, you know, the ability to put food on your family's table, it's those things. I mean, I, I will never forget as long as I live on the anniversary of a $40 million verdict, I got a, a photo from the grave of my client from a, that a juror put there. I mean, you, you must have did, done a good job and connected with them if a year later, it's still on their mind. Well, and that's just, a testament, obviously, to you and Nick, but you know, we always like to hear from the guests that we have on the show about things that have really impacted them. And you answered that question without even us asking it. And that literally gave me chills because I had no idea what you're going to say and where that was going. But um, that is just super fascinating. And as I said, again, a testament to what you do and why it's so important. Now, switching gears a little bit, Keith, this is one of my favorite questions because I'm a big believer in routines and how people set themselves up for success. So outside of the courtroom, because obviously, as you said, you're getting ready for multiple cases at once, you're laptopping and driving um, at the same time, all these different things, podcasting, listening to your notes. What do you do daily that keeps you in your top condition for both your work and just your personal life? So I don't mean to sound hokey, but you you might get hokey answers to this. Uh, but I have an amazing relationship with my wife who is 
also my partner. So I don't feel as though I'm ever getting ready for something. I feel I'm always ready for it. Um, I have, I have a unique experience because I can come home and complain about something and I can find an answer in her, or I can come home and celebrate something and find a partner in celebration in her. Um, so I, you know, I've, I've lived life as the lawyer without that. And it, there's no substitute for that. It constantly engages the mind and it's a, it's a true kind of cooperative, um, equally shared goal that we both have. And it's very freeing. It allows me, you know, I don't have to go home, you know, to four children and a wife and say, honey, I'm really sorry, but I have to try a case in Washington, you know, in the next three weeks. She knows, she, she knows, she gets it. I go, you know, honey, I'm going to Washington. And she goes, yep, I got your tickets. You're booked at the Fairmont. Uh, I've sent the, you know, exhibit books up if you need anything, you know, or I'll come up. That's our relationship. And and there's no kind of better preparation for this than that. And I, I get that it's very unique. Um, and I'm blessed to have that. And I don't know what I'd do without it. I certainly wouldn't be getting the verdicts I'm getting if I didn't have that. That's great. And that is unique. Um, the final question, which we ask every guest is what is something that you know now in your practice that you wish you knew five or 10 years ago when you were practicing? What do I wish that I knew now? I, I really, okay. That's a, that's an excellent question. I like it. Cause there's a lot, <laughs> an amazing amount. Um, I wish that I knew that there were so many paths to success. There were so many ways to do it. I feel like I spent a lot of time trying to watch successful people and then emulate what they do. What uh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to walk around like this or Nick Rowley shows up in court in cowboy boots. I know I'll get a pair of cowboy boots. I look ridiculous in cowboy boots. like that guy from Philadelphia who just put on cowboy boots and you're like, why are you wearing cowboy boots? (laughs) I wish I knew that, that that was the case. And I, I've told people at at seminars because I mean this, uh, I've observed this. It's true. If you took the top 20 Mercedes Benz, uh, sales associates in the country and you said, you know what, you're, you're, you guys are the top 20. We're going to reward you guys. You're going to have a, um, you know, a, a, a golf retreat somewhere because, of course, they all have to golf. So that group of people, I would venture to bet, of the top twenty Mercedes-Benz sellers in the country, would have a very similar look. They'd have a very similar manner of speaking. They'd have a very similar background, maybe upbringing. If you took the top twenty trial lawyers in the country. And you said, we're going to give you that same kind of trip. You'd have men, you'd have women, you'd have older folks, you'd have younger folks, you'd have people that are fat, you'd have people that are thin, you'd, you'd have people of all different colors, of all different religions. It would be this kind of, of just giant melting pot of people. And what does that tell you? That means to be 
successful in this business, you just have to be you. There's not this, you don't have to be some, you know, chiclet, perfect hair, newscaster looking dude. Um, you know, you can be, you, you don't have to be a dude, you know? And I think that's a great testament to the fact that there's so many different ways to be successful. If you have integrity and you have curiosity, you'll find the path. All right. That's one of my favorite answers that we've gotten so far. So thank you very much for sharing that. So Keith, um, if a potential client's listening or a, another attorney that may want to bring you in and, and co-counsel a case with you, how do they get in touch with you? So the easiest way is my cell phone, 310-745-7811. I, that's the only phone I have and I use it. Or just email Keith, my first name, at czrlaw.com and i'm happy to talk with any you know i half of the people i talk with don't have a case for me they just have something that they need to talk about and i'm such a law nerd that i love i love talking about it i mean that's why i agreed to do this i what else am i going for right (laughs) (laughs) my time i love it well, that's great. Well, we thank you so much for coming on. This was this was fun and, and great. I think a lot of people are going to have uh, a lot of things to take away from it. So we really appreciate you uh, coming on. We want to uh, thank our listeners. We hope you'll uh, like, subscribe, review the podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps our visibility. So when people are searching for legal content, we're going to pop up there. So thanks so much. And we will see you on the next episode. Thanks, Keith. Thank you, guys.